Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. There's never been a better time for physical products than now. My name is Dallin Drew Bay, and I want to learn from the best minds in the industry. This is the golden age for consumer products. This is a time where anyone can go from zero to financially independent. This is the physical products movement. Welcome to the physical products movement. My name is Dallin Drew Bay. I am your host. This podcast is powered by Fiddle Inventory, the best the fastest, the most innovative inventory management software to ever hit the market. These guys are disrupting this industry. No more hefty servers, no more unresponsive customer support. Fiddle is cloud-based, so nothing will get in the way of your production. And Fiddle's created a one-of-a-kind Kanban or Trello board view, so you can see your work orders and sales orders in the most clear way possible. And the best part is, Fiddle is free. It has room to grow and paid plans as you go. But if you want to get started, there's no lengthy demos, no binding contracts, and the free lasts forever. Free trials are a thing of the past. So go to fiddle.io slash podcast today to see the latest episodes of this podcast and also to get started. We have an amazing guest today. I'm going to pick this man's brain. He is brilliant. His name is Colby Bauer. He is the founder of Thread Wallets. These things are really cool. He brought some for me to play around with, and I'm excited to figure out how this brand came to be. So uh, let's uh, let's get started here. Thank you for joining me today, Colby. Yeah, dude. Likewise. Tell me your name and the com- name of your company. Yep. My name is Colby Bauer and I'm with Thread Wallets. Awesome. Um, not not to be confused with Fred Wallace. We get that all the time. <laughs> Fred Wallace. When we're on the phone, dude, it's like, you're like, and who is this? We're like, this is Thread Wallets. They're like Fred, Fred Wallace. Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> so our mascot's Fred Wallace the walrus. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. My last name is Drew Bay. Uh-huh. And so... It's D R O U B A Y, and uh, so I'll get mail all the time for oh, Doctor like Ube. Oh my gosh, that's nice. wonderful! Nice, yeah. <laughs> Fred Wallace. Fred Wallace. We're here with Fred Wallace today. Yeah, the founder of thread, Fred Wallets. <laughs> like needle. Oh, I said it. Like needle and thread. T H R E A D Wallets. <laughs> thread Wallets are, is a minimalist carry and carry accessory brand um, that promotes originality and. Um, just expression. <laughs> so tell me about your, this is, these are awesome. Yeah. Your product's amazing. Yeah. Thread wallets, the idea for 
the thread wallet. That's our flagship product, which is just an elastic yeah. loop and a key ring attached. It all started in 2014. I was at a class at BYU mm-hmm. Hawaii and I, um, we were taking this class that, uh, sorry, it wasn't more of a class. It was more of a uh, conference and mm-hmm. the title of it was in 24 hours, launch a Kickstarter campaign. Oh, really? <laughs> and so I was like, let's do this. I went to the conference and throughout, I was learning a lot about Kickstarter, a lot about just product in general, but some of the examples they used were wallets, these minimalist wallets. Mm-hmm. And these campaigns surprisingly were hitting like $300,000 plus. I was like, whoa. Well, yeah. I was like, let's do, like, I can do that. Like, that's just an elastic loop, you know? Wow. But, and this is kind of at the same time where I had just lost my wallet in the ocean. And so I was using a rubber band and I I loved the concept of a rubber band because it was minimalist. Yeah. But every time I looked online for a new wallet, they were always just like your black and brown. Mm -hmm. If they weren't minimalist, they were very bulky. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just leather. And so I thought I could bring this category to life because nobody's focusing on it. Yeah. As far as the, in the way that I wanted to, which was, I wanted to put a brand to it mm-hmm. and I wanted to bring them to life with expression on, in the design, in the styles yeah. and the colors. And that, that speaks to me. And I thought that would speak to a lot of other people as well. It's the design of all of these are just so unique there and they're amazing. Yeah. I, I love it. Well, thanks. Man. Cause it is, it's true. It, it's kind of weird how these emerged originally, you know, not specifically, you know, elastic wallets but that space just feels so male dominated like you're saying with like the black leather the yeah. brown leather but i mean these are stylish for everybody yeah know? actually surprisingly enough 70 percent of our audience is female hmm. and i thought it would be more male because of right. like what you said it's more dominated like that minimalist wallet the front pocket wallet it's just like ingrained that we keep the slim wallet on us but yeah. women have a clutch or a purse and they're just like, they have all these accessories they got to carry. So I actually never thought that it would become more female dominant, but it has. And I think it's due to um, a replacement or an alternative to your purse. Yeah. So now women don't have to carry around a massive purse anymore because it's, it, you got everything you need right there. That's so cool. I think of like my wife, she's got this giant, you know, like this giant thing yeah. full of cards she never uses and stuff. And like, this is a perfect solution. Yeah. It's amazing. So you had your Kickstarter samples. You're going, wow, people are freaking out about this, even though it was just, you know, an idea. Yeah. When did you decide, okay, I'm going to do this for real now? Um, honestly, I took a lot of validation before I was actually ready. Yeah. Only because it was at this time in my life, kind of a fork in the road where mm. I was graduating school and I had an opportunity to be a financial advisor, kind of follow my dad's footsteps footsteps Mm -hmm. there. Um, I wanted to pursue playing professional soccer. And then I had this idea that it gained some traction, but like the Kickstarter did well, but it wasn't a home run by any means. It wasn't hundreds of thousands of dollars. Our first Kickstarter did 8,000. Our second did 30,000. So it wasn't like a a no brainer at Mm -hmm. this point. Um, So it took a little bit more of a push. It it really required my wife and I, um, we sat down together and we said, Let's just give it six months mm. and just see where it takes us. And if in six months it's a no-brainer, then obviously let's go. If if not, we'll revisit it and figure out something. But that wow. that's kind of our that was our like game plan. 
we pushed as hard as we could. We launched a second Kickstarter campaign, and then we really started focusing on Instagram and influencer marketing. Awesome. Those were two massive waves that we kind of caught early on mm-hmm. um, that we just kind of took advantage of sending tons and tons of product out to influencers yeah. with no strings attached. There was no like, you need to post, you need to post, you need to you like, there's nothing. It was just see if you like the product. If you want to, you can post. And we got some really good names posting and that's really mm. gained some traction. And then after our Kickstarter launched our website and honestly, it was a no brainer. Those, the revenue numbers within the first week were like, yeah, this is, this will work. Awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. I love the, we'll give it six months and see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Just dive in, you know, all the way and, and see. So the thing, it's interesting because there's new Kickstarters every day. People are trying to do, you know, new products every single day, right? And it sounds like what set, and correct me if I'm wrong, what set you apart with your Kickstarter and making it successful is you also accompanied it with influencer marketing, Instagram. You hit it hard on all fronts instead of just, you know. Totally, yeah. Uh, If you think that Kickstarter is going to do all the work, Mm -hmm. you're you're wrong. there's a lot more of behind the scenes that you just don't see with these massive campaigns that do really well. Yeah. Um, the ones that are raising millions and millions of dollars are also spending millions of dollars on ads mm-hmm. in like Facebook and Instagram and wherever else. So yeah, definitely it requires more of like a diversified marketing. Um, you can't rely on even just one influencer to yeah. think that you're going to hit it out of the park. Like it's, you, sure. you have to, get it out to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's one advice I'd give for anybody starting a product um, outside of the product, just the marketing aspect of getting that into the marketplace. You can't rely on one source or Mm -hmm. one person or anything like that to, to make it big. With that said, you should simplify. Simplicity wins the day nine times out of 10. So you need to really kind of focus and narrow your, your marketing mm-hmm. channels, but you, you can't get, um, too single-minded where you're, you're just kind of putting all your eggs in this one basket thinking it's right. going to work. Yeah. That makes sense. Did you guys use anybody for marketing to assist you or was it all? Yeah. Strap? Yeah. Um, the first Kickstarter, no, it, th- that was more of like the class project. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go watch that. It's horrible and you'll <laughs> laugh and I'll, I'll, you know, cringe, but the, uh, we did use a company called funded today on the second one and they were the same company that had raised a lot of money for campaigns prior and actually after us. So, um, one of the other competitor wallets that, um, we're good friends with them, nomadic, they were named basic wallet at the time. You can check them out on Kickstarter too. They're, they raised, I think, I can't remember the number, but it was over a hundred thousand dollars and it was a similar wallet. So we thought, Partnering with Funded Today, we would do something similar. We ended up not, we only did 30,000, but mm-hmm. without Funded Today, we wouldn't have done anywhere close to 30,000. So it was it was worth it for us. Cool. Well, that's good to know. I mean, because that's the type of thing you see the debate all the time about, you know, do bootstrap at all? Is it worth using people? But I think, you know, when with people I've talked to so far, it usually is smart to use some assistance yeah. there just because... It's like, these are professional marketers that have done it before, but you know, that's good. That's cool. Yeah. I think relying on people who specialize is also extremely important because if you're, I know you're all, 
already wearing so many hats when you're yeah. starting a business. The more you can outsource and let people focus on what they specialize in, you'll see a lot more efficiencies and you'll see way better return. Mm -hmm. There's obviously things you can't outsource right off the bat. You know, um, production, you probably can. Fulfillment, you probably can. Maybe even bookkeeping or an accountant, you might be able to. Um, but like advertising, that might be kind of hefty. Mm -hmm. um, so that one's kind of, you might have to wear that hat. The way I structured it early on with our, his name's Logan England. He does all of our digital marketing. I structured it in a way where the base uh, payment wasn't so high so that I could actually afford him. Mm -hmm. But then I incentivized him with the net profit. So mm -hmm. he was incentivized to make us money, but also, um, you know, not spend too much. Like we're actually netting money. So then yeah. I would pay him a percentage based on net. Mm. So you got to get creative sometimes when you're, outsourcing, but I think the advice there is you don't want to fill your plate too much. You're obviously going to be wearing hat, a lot of hats, multiple hats yeah. early on. But if you're, if you're wearing too many hats, then that's when you start to lose efficiencies. You can't focus on the things that actually will bring you the, the greater return. Yeah. And so what I decided early on was I can, well, it took me a while. It took me like two years before I actually decided this, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> getting things off my plate helped me started to focus on creative and marketing, which is where thread excels. That's where we want yeah. to focus. And that's where we're good. We don't care to be the best shippers. Like who cares mm -hmm. if thread wallets isn't going to be the best fulfillment company. So I'll yeah. outsource that to somebody who does care to be the best fulfillment company, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that will help any young entrepreneur. Understand. Well, and that's where I'm curious. So you do the Kickstarter and then how did you even go about beginning to manufacture these in-house dude that sucks so bad i'll tell you i i probably have cancer lung cancer from all the fumes i inhaled oh, pressing man. those wallets um it took way too long before i decided to outsource i think it was a fear of mine that sure. it would be quality or there was a anyway to answer your question we raise enough money to buy machinery to make the wallets in-house. Okay. I was just buying all the materials like the elastic out of mm -hmm. China. Actually, no, that was out of LA. Other things were out of China. Basically brought all these parts here. Um, the elastic was white. Then we, we bought the printer. So we'd print onto the elastic. Smart. And then sew it in-house and mm. um, pack it, you know, all the packaging in-house <sighs> and ship it. It, it was, it took a lot of time um, and it slowly <laughs> took more and more time as the orders increased. And that's when I was like, why are we focusing on this? Like, let's get this off our plate. Yeah. So if I could go back in time, I would have done that from day one. Mm. Um, and that way I could focus more on growing the business as opposed to just maintaining it or trying to keep up. Um, there was a, I will say a pro of doing it in-house that I held on to, and that was being nimble Mm -hmm. We didn't have any minimum order quantities we had to hit in yeah. uh, when we were doing the production. So I could test any style I wanted and just kind of see what people actually gravitated towards. Yeah. So it was really nice for just to kind of like validate what designs people wanted mm -hmm. early on and kind of test a bunch at, at one time. That's great. And that I held on to for probably too long, but I, I think that was the pro. I, I like being nimble in that regard. Um, but again, if I could go back to my, I would from day one just... just Get, it get off that out. Life. Yeah. At, sure. at, at your maximum production point, how many were you guys doing by yourselves? 
Oh, like probably. So 50 orders a day, probably. <laughs> and uh, so you had to stock inventory. So what I would do is I would just do like my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was all production. Jeez. And then um, Mackenzie, my wife, would manage the fulfillment. But I would just try to basically keep up by demand, um, kind of looking at like the track record. And like, that's how I would gauge my inventory. I was always low. It seemed like I was always trying to <laughs> keep up and it sucked so bad trying to do that and probably gave me some ulcers, but <laughs> that's impressive though. Got that's so it, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and then that point, you know, I, I'm just curious to know from, from that point, you know, you're overwhelmed, you're side, let's get this out of in-house. What, how'd you approach that? What did you do? You know, you hopping on Google, looking exactly. people Pretty up. much, dude. It, um, Alibaba, there's a lot of resources out there these days. Yeah. Um, this is when I'd probably uh, rely on maybe like a third party company, like a supply chain company mm. to help. Um, but I just, I I decided I was going to do it. So I went on Alibaba.com mm -hmm. and started to vet through different factories. Nobody was making elastic wallets though. That was one that you couldn't just search and sure. find a ton of factories. There's certain products you can mm. do that. Like if you're, if you're manufacturing socks, for instance, yeah. it's like you can find a thousand factories in a split second. Mm. But what I had to do is I had to start thinking through what other elastic products are similar to this. So what I ended up searching was, uh, you know, like those captain armbands, like soccer players wear. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. So I thought that's a very similar product, right? There's the same printing process. Yeah. There's, um, it's the same loop, you know, it's probably a similar elastic or they have access to other elastics. So I started searching those companies mm. and that I landed on some good ones. Um, another one was the same process. And this took some research to figure out how to print on these things, but the same process that you use to print on Elastic was also done on lanyards. Oh, okay. So I also started searching lanyard companies. So then I could basically say, can you print on this elastic? And then all you have to do is cut and sew it. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, I found what I did, my process was I would find five to 10 factories mm -hmm. that I, I felt were good. And then I would narrow it down. I would ask them for their minimum order quantities. I'd ask them for their lead times mm -hmm. um, and obviously cost of goods. And so I did that. And then I asked for samples from like the top three to five, the mm. ones that I thought were, you know, fit fitting in, in my cost of goods and all that. And then I'd say, can, can we run samples? So I'd maybe run five different samples with five different factories and then kind of gauge on more than just how the sample turned out. I mm -hmm. would also gauge on their communication, how they Smart. were with communication, understanding what I wanted, um, being flexible, being responsive. And then obviously the sample, how close did they get to what I wanted mm. and then how willing were they to, to revise? So that's kind of my, that was my process early on and it, it works and I would still use that same process. Awesome. Did you feel like you had to make any compromises from the, you know, the type of wallet you're producing before to now going to, you know, massive manufacturing? The original one, that original wallet, uh, it's called the elastic wallet. We didn't see any sacrifices or compromise in, awesome. in quality or any of that. I was, mm -hmm. I was worried big time on that because yeah. we were so, there was, it's kind of a temperamental elastic. Sometimes it would get holes in it. And mm -hmm. so I was worried that like they would rip and all that. And, you know, so obviously we have defects still within our product. Sure. Every, every company does, but the, um, 
uh, my biggest fear was holding me back from just letting go and letting letting them do that. And I came to realize they're actually doing a better job than we did in-house. Awesome. So as far as quality goes, no. We held on to that same product for maybe two and a half years before we launched anything new. Yeah. And that's when I started to, I guess, question, um, like, just how do I expand my product line? How, mm-hmm. what... Am I going to compromise on my brand or on the quality or like what, what's the next price point I hit? There's just a lot more that you have to think through right. when you're launching something new, but that original wallet, no, to answer your question, no, we didn't compromise anything. Well, they're amazing. I mean, I, I can pull on these things and <laughs> they're so flexible. They're roller coaster approved, meaning we went on the, a roller coaster with them with cards in them. Really? And, uh, it, it all stayed in. So you're good. <laughs> these are amazing. <laughs> So that's my my next question for you. It's fascinating to me, you know, looking into these wallets. It, it, there's there's kind of this trend happening, um, you know, locally with it's not just, you know, our age group, but you're hitting, you know, these high schoolers and junior high schoolers. This is like a this is a trend going on. Yeah. You know, what how'd you go about doing that and getting them into their hands? That is a good question. I didn't think the brand started off the way I um, expected or maybe wanted. I Mm -hmm. initially thought, you know, because of my lifestyle, I like, you know, the surf, skate, snow industry and those types of brands. Yeah. And so I thought that's kind of where we would go. But you start to learn that women buy 80% of goods in this world. And um, especially early on riding the Instagram wave. Mm Mm-hmm there's a lot of influencers pointing at the younger demographic and the female demographic. Hmm. And my wife was in charge of marketing. So it naturally went that way, which yeah. is, it was beautiful. We had a great aesthetic, you know, um, we hired some really good photographers out of Hawaii and elsewhere that provided some really high quality content. And, um, it's, it resonated with the younger female demographic. It has slowly, we've acquired, older demographics, the male demographic, but I am, if I could go back in time, I'd do that all over again. Mm. I would focus on the female and young because you're getting, you're getting these customers at a young age and then they can grow with your brand. Yeah. And females are driven, um, by like the cute factor of a mm-hmm. product where at least this is what we've learned within thread females. They focus more primarily on the like the looks, the aesthetic of it, and yeah. then the functionality. They're both they both come, but one's like fashion comes first, then function. Yeah. Whereas men focus on the functionality first, then sure. if it fits their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so with our product by nature, with having all these fun prints on it, girls were attracted to it. Yeah. And then it it made sense. And then also women are very uh willing to share. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about it. They talk about their products, they complement each other's products. So it was kind of like a natural um, trend yeah. or yeah, virality, I guess. It seems that way. It's interesting, you know, being involved in other podcasts and my wife's like mom podcast, right? They, they love, there's this thing of like loving to communicate when you find a good product it's like, oh man, I got to share gotta with all my go. friends. Like yeah. I want to spread this around. This totally. is so cool, you know? Yeah. And I can totally see how that came in place. So it sounds like, you know, there's, there's in marketing, there's always the content debate, right? Yeah. So I'm getting a sense of where you fall on that side of yeah. it's king. <laughs> yeah. You got to do yeah. it. For sure. For sure. I mean, it, uh, at least within our business, every yeah. business is different. 
Um, as an example, the nomadic company I mentioned with their wallets, mm-hmm. their demographic is uh, probably 90% male. I don't know the exact yeah. number, but their bags and their products are so functional, hyper-functional, mm-hmm. and men love that. And yeah. whether or not they share it, I have no idea, but they probably don't need to focus on the lifestyle branding aspect of nomadic. They can focus more on the product and it's driven mm-hmm. by functionality. And so that's probably where their content lies is like education and, you know, showcasing the the functionality of it. And so it all just depends on who your customer is and what your product is and does. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So if you're talking to an aspiring entrepreneur that's getting involved in product, what would you, what advice would you give them to help find who your customer is? Find, you know, who it is that they need to target? Well, I think it has to resonate with that entrepreneur's lifestyle and personality to begin with. Mm. Um, people can see right through somebody if if it's not authentic. Mm. So for me, if I was to go into what Nomadic's doing, it probably wouldn't come off authentic sure. and vice versa. If they tried to do what Thread did, it wouldn't be authentic. So for us, it made sense that we are going to point our brand at the people that are like us, yeah. you know, that we can speak the same language. We do the same things. And mm. because then it comes off genuine, if you try to fake it, you're going to fail. It'll fall likely. apart. You're going to fall. <laughs> so um, that's a one indicator is like, it should be authentic to who you are. Um, but then again, you just have to put it out in the marketplace and kind of let them decide yeah. too. Um, a lot of times you don't really have all the control of who your customer ends up being. You can put out all the content in the world, but who buys it, it could be a completely different person than what you want. Yeah. And so, um, and you have to be aware of that. Your end customer, your the person who's actually buying the wallet might not be the same person that you took a photo and put it on Instagram. They, mm-hmm. they could be, one might be, uh, sorry, I won't, I guess I won't use any examples there because that might be distracting, but sure. I think the principle there is, you know, they could be the end customer and how you market to that customer could be, can look different. They could be different to a degree. Hmm. I love that. It's, it's so interesting to me because it feels like there's been this idea, you know, the past few years it's been surgery. I'm like, Oh, you know, it's all about tech, right? Products are, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, but I'm seeing a new insurgence of product come in. You know, um, and I'm interested to hear your perspective on on that. You know, what is it that's causing this new wave of products to to start coming forward? Yeah, there's multiple things. I think at least within our community in Utah, you have schools pushing tech hard. And Mm -hmm. it's because, first off, there's uh, been an attraction to tech and success within tech. So naturally, people go down that road and um it's been booming, you know, Mm -hmm. where the silicone slopes now. What I've seen lately due to tech is you have an easier um, entry to consumer. So like Mm -hmm. I mentioned, Alibaba.com, that's a tech, that's a website. And with their tech, you can now source things in China by, you know, email or Skype. It's like just that easy. Whereas it, you know, back in the day, you had to fly to China and it's just like this barrier of entry was way higher. So tech has kind of lowered those barriers. Another one would be Shopify. Mm-hmm. Shopify has helped dramatically um, just lay a foundation for how to build a website. 
And then now they have this open app platform where you can integrate pretty much anything you want into your website. Mm -hmm. So just setting up e-commerce makes it, with all the the help of tech, um, has made it easier for creatives to bring about consumer products. Mm. Um, And then we were just talking earlier, but alongside the surgence of of, um, consumer products, most of these tech companies, they have to raise a lot of money to make, to even get started or to to acquire, yeah, to be be profitable. It takes years and years. Mm -hmm. Um, they, a lot of times have to go in debt or they have to, you know, just raise a ton of money. Um, with that said, these investors have portfolios of major tech companies without seeing a return on their investment for years. And so now in the past five years, they've realized they need to start filling their portfolio with consumer product brands or just companies in general that are profitable. And that usually points to consumer products because it's easy to just give you a wallet, you give me $15, you know? Tech tech sometimes (laughs) to monetize tech, whether it's an app or software, that can take years, you know, Mm -hmm. before you're actually bringing in money. And then to make it profitable, it can be even longer than that. So consumers, I think a little bit easier to be profitable earlier on. Yeah. And so now there's a an attention there to consumer products, getting investment, getting the resources that they need with strategic partners right. and the tech that is mentioned. Well, I saw something, I saw this crazy chart the other day and it was breaking down how now is a unique time in this industry because all of the major players, like the big companies that have dominated distribution for years are all being disrupted by smaller companies Interesting, yeah, popping in and we're living in this time now. I honestly think it's it could be the golden age for for manufacturing a product. It mm. it could be because you have the ability to top on a GoFundMe, get started through Instagram and influence and YouTube or whatever you're doing, right? And get in front of people where before you had to solely rely on retail. Totally. Solely rely on getting into stores and distribution was uh, that's what mattered. But now yeah. all these companies are being disrupted by amazing people coming in the marketplace like you guys and, and taking it over. Yep. It's been easier now than ever before to, like you said, get Mm -hmm. your product out there in the marketplace and start getting sales from day one. Yeah. It's awesome. It is awesome. It really is. Well, and, and watching, you know, I'm obviously involved with fiddle and, you know, we've got the software trying to help the process of inventory be a lot easier. Right. But it still is. It's like, you have that whole, that backside of it. Tech is difficult. Tech has saved our lives. It's, yeah. We rely heavily on it, even as a consumer product, especially as a consumer product. Now mm-hmm. we have, oh man, I couldn't even count how many apps and softwares we use to operate our business. Yeah. What's beautiful about that though, is now you don't have to hire as, as many people. Right. I guess that's a pro and a con to a degree, but we can remain very lean with our mm-hmm. team and scale pretty dramatically with just yeah. this tech. It's awesome. Well, what do you think, you know, just to name a couple of them, what are the cannot live without apps that you guys well, are using? That's a definite Shopify. Yeah. Um, we use um, there's a lot of apps within Shopify that we use probably mm-hmm. 20 or so, uh, one being Nosto, which is a personalization. So on our site, mm-hmm. it's basically like pairs well with, or kind of like upselling sure. you to products mm-hmm. that has increased revenue dramatically. So Nosto has been really good. Um, Clavio on our email marketing, um, side of things, they're excellent for e-commerce brands. 
Mm-hmm. Um, let me think. Those are the top ones that keep coming to my mind. But yeah. It's so cool. Oh, yeah. Shopify has changed the game Big time. completely. Well, that's amazing. I want to get, you know, we've, we dove into the product and talked about the process, but I also just want to get to know you a little bit. Tell us who you are. Tell us about your family, you know, whatever you're interested in sharing. Yeah. I, I grew up playing soccer every day. Um, love the sport. Ended up playing collegiate soccer at BYU and BYU Hawaii. So it's kind of bouncing back and forth. And then um, I've always been interested in skateboarding and kind of like that surf, skate, snow Mm -hmm. lifestyle. And I was attracted to fashion um, and consumer products from an early age. Um, Also entrepreneurship. That's always been, I think, a part of me. And early on in high school, I, I, I was drawing some pictures with my my good buddy on an airplane next to my dad. And we were just kind of brainstorming us like maybe 13, 14 years old. And we were thinking, let's do a a t-shirt company or, you know, like every kid does, you know? (laughs) And my dad leans over and after about an hour of drawing, he's like, why don't you guys actually do that? Like, just go for it. And I was like, I don't even know where I'd start. He's like, well, I'll help you guys. And so he helped us get things going. But, um, you know, that, that's who my dad is. He was always very supportive of whatever I did. And, um, that kind of, you know, fast forwarding to when I was about to graduate, um, he's a financial advisor and he kind of mm-hmm. laid this, this like plan for me, you know, of like how I could take over his firm and, and help grow it and all this. Right. And basically in essence, he was saying like, here's a gold mine for you. Yeah. Here's, here's the shovel. Basically all you have to do is go to school and then, you know, you'll have to work your butt off, but you know what I mean? Like it was, it was there. Mm. My personality though was like, I'm going to go find my own gold mine. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go figure it out myself. Um, I think that it's not no disrespect to my dad. It was more of the, I like the adventure. I kind of, I'm, I'm driven by the question mark, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm curious and I want to figure out what I can do, what I can create. And so that's just who I am. Um, and that still drives me with thread today. Um, still love designing, love having my hands on every part of the business. We have 15 employees now. Um, but you know, so relatively small, but I, I still like to, you know, get my hands dirty on, on all different departments. So yeah. super fun. That's awesome. And are you married and have kids? Yeah. So I missed out the most important, um, <laughs> my, <laughs> yeah. So I've been married for five years. Um, Mackenzie Bauer, she's from Utah. I'm mm-hmm. originally from Arizona and, um, we have two little girls right now. We have a three-year-old next week and six month old, um, their names are Ray and Scotty. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. They're the freaking best. Yeah, kids are yeah, the freaking the best. best. I agree with you. <laughs> Do you have any, I mean, the, the cool part about today is, is we, you know, technology connects so many people together. It's insane to think about the tech, you know, the random people that listen into these things or hear things. So for anyone that is, an aspiring entrepreneur in this space or is currently one and, you know, struggling to grow or anything, any advice you want to give them? Simplicity wins the day. I think I said that once in the podcast, but Mm. simplicity nine times out of 10 will get you a lot further. So just staying niche Mm. um, and, and nailing that down, going deeper in, in very few departments or pillars Mm. and, and just hitting those really hard. Awesome. Um, I think another one, another piece of advice I'd give is you don't have to hit a home run. It can be just getting on base and then 
getting to second base and then third base and then home. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be this like grand slam, you know, and I think that I used to think that. Mm-hmm. So I, that helped me once I kind of wrapped my head around just validating it slowly and, and letting it evolve and let it pivot. Yeah. Those are, those are big pieces of advice. That's awesome. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think I myself, even sometimes I get caught up in this mindset of, you know, you want to be this huge thing, but these like niche companies, this is, this is impressive. Yeah. It's an incredible thing to build and it gives you, it opens the door to so many other opportunities. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is tough, but it, it opens the door to so many things that you can accomplish in your life. So yep. Um, trying to think of, there's one other piece of advice. Oh, um, when developing your product, a lot of times people have an idea and then mm-hmm. you go share it to a friend and they're like, oh yeah, I think they already have that. And then the person pitching the idea goes, oh man, and then counts it <laughs> off as like, it's done, right? Yeah. It, can, it can no longer happen. Mm-hmm. But if you really think about Nike, Adidas existed and Reebok existed. So mm-hmm. would Nike be even a thing if they just wrote it off as, oh, somebody already has. Someone already makes shoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like (laughs) what, and not to knock off people, that's not the advice I'm giving, but it's if something exists, that doesn't mean it's a reason to drop it, but Mm -hmm. then you can let it maybe make it better or gear it towards a different market. You know, like maybe it's hunters, maybe it's surfers, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. And maybe you just put a little twist on it or you make it better or you lower the price point or there's so many ways you can kind of differentiate yourself mm-hmm. from that product. And I, I just think like too often we write ideas often they're solid ideas just because somebody else has, has yeah. done it, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, you even you look at the Nike example you gave, you can even go further and say, well, Under Armour. Yeah, they came, yeah, in they so came in late, late to the Ex- game. Totally, yeah. They're one of the. They're actually probably leaders. a better example. You're right. It's crazy to yeah. me that, yeah, for sure. I always, I, it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit when someone has, you know, some sort of idea, and becomes so protective of the idea and everything. Yeah. It's like idea is not the hard part. No, no. yeah, it's, <laughs> anyone it's can have an idea. So true. It's yeah. the execution that is the impressive part and the difficult part. So yeah, yeah, I, I recommend getting your idea out there and letting mm-hmm. people rip it apart you know try to poke holes in it try to convince yourself to get out of it and if you can't then then do it you know yeah smart okay well thank you so much for coming on thank you this has been awesome thanks for thanks for coming real quick before this episode starts i want to ask you are you still using spreadsheets to manage your inventory suppliers co-packers and production Unless you're a wizard with cells and formulas, you can only grow so much with spreadsheets. When you're selling on your website, in retail stores, in online marketplaces, and more, it gets hard to track your inventory levels. Stockouts become a regular occurrence and fulfilling orders keep you awake at night. Use Fiddle instead. Our software is built to help CPG businesses like yours scale more easily with constant insight into your inventory and production at all levels. Go to fiddle.io to learn more and schedule a personalized demo.